2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, and 1 Timothy 3, 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. The other texts were great too, wonderful, and I'm sure apply here somehow. I just don't know how they apply, and I don't know if I can do that on the fly in 60 minutes. So let me, let me read for you the passage this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no, one, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." And then 1 Timothy 1, uh, sorry, first, sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. Don't, don't, don't pay attention to the screen. Just listen to me. All right. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out. This passage was just read. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. And then he goes on, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father, Father, may, may we, in these moments, set aside the things that distract us from the calling that you put on our lives. May we set aside our trust and belief in everything else but your word. And then repent of those places where necessary. And bring us to a place where we truly believe in the sufficiency and the authority of your scriptures. I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We begin with a series of questions. What do I believe? What should I believe? How much should I believe? How tightly do I believe that which I do believe? Hashtag fake news. Hashtag truth committee. Hashtag your truth, my truth. We can all have our own. Or how about this? Who's, who's the boss? Not the sitcom. Which way are we going? What's right? What's wrong? How come I feel condemned? Did I sin? Did I not? By what standard? How do I know? Hashtag feelings. Hashtag can't sleep. Hashtag, I'm the boss. Just a short conglomeration, I think, of the many questions we all face, and at least ask subconsciously every single day, 
and is asked by every person that walks this planet, what do I believe? What should I believe? How do I know what's right? How do I know if I'm walking in the right way? Who determines that? Who sets the pace? Who sets the direction? And the reality is this, many, if not all of these questions can be easily answered for someone who believes in the sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures. We're in a mess as a culture, and your life and my life are oftentimes in a mess because we don't truly believe in the sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures. And you say, well, I, I believe that. I believe in the sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures, of course. But how easy is it to say that with our minds and say something completely different with our hearts and with our hands? Maybe for you, it's a mental ascension, like you agree with it mentally, but our lives are, your life is far from it. Indeed, all of our lives are not living perfectly in accord with the sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures. That's our distinctive for this week. Distinctive. Meaning, I want to define the, a distinctive, is something we believe as a church that is important for us to draw out or draw attention to in this moment in time and for this next season that sets us apart, certainly from the world, but even from other churches. The distinctive is this, the sufficiency and authority of the Scriptures. Let me give you a quick definition of what we mean by that. We believe that the Holy Scriptures are in supreme authority over all creation and that they are sufficient for God's image bearers to know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all. Let me say that again. We believe that the Holy Scriptures are in supreme authority as they proceed from the mouth of the Lord over all creation and that they are sufficient for his image bearers to know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all. Now, let me give you kind of a, just a broad observation. This is kind of typical path, at least in, in my preaching. And then we'll, we'll start walking through authority and then sufficiency and what we mean by that and how to apply it. But first, we're living in a church culture. So I'm not talking about just the world, Okay. I'm not talking about those who have no claim to the name of Jesus. We're talking about just the church, those who would claim Christianity. We're living in a church culture that is, by and large, made up, or the mass of people is the product of kind of two general schools of thought, two general convictions. One is what I would call like old school fundamentalism, and the second, what I would call pragmatism. I'm going to define those, so hang with me. Old school fundamentalism and what is probably the largest mass of people claiming to be Christians, what do we call pragmatists? So old school fundamentalists, where they would write laws in addition to God's law 
in order to feel self-righteous or feel justified by their own doing. I can check that box. You know, I don't have a tattoo, so that means I'm righteous and I'm not going to go to hell. Check, right? That's an easy one to do. The second, a pragmatist. A church trying to attract people in ways, cool ways, maybe whatever, but regardless of what the Bible instructs. So meaning the, the Bible is kind of set aside, to the, to, set over here in the corner. We want to make sure we reference it every once in a while. But it's really about getting people to come based on any other thing we can do because it's all about getting people in a seat and getting people in attendance and, and we'll baptize that in spiritualism and, and by referencing a Bible verse, you know, once or twice in a, in a uh, service and singing fluffy songs about Jesus. That's probably the largest mass of people, of Christians. So here's what we have. We have multiple generations and millions of supposed Christians where for decades they've been taught that the scriptures are not sufficient, this old school fundamentalism, not sufficient, so we should add to them, and not authoritative, so we can do whatever we want in the name of attracting people to quote the faith, end quote. The result is millions of supposed Christians who claim they have faith in God and Christ and the gospel and all the, the cute, you know, appropriate words, but have very little regard for the actual word of God. Very little taste for it, desire for it, appetite for it, love for it, knowledge of it. Very little. Why? Because they grew up in a culture or a church where it's really about our rules and our law and not about what the Bible says. Or it's really about the way we do church and what we want to talk about and, and our little five steps of, of how to have a better marriage than what it is the Bible actually has to say about that. We have a culture where the sufficiency of the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures is lost on us. Now listen, we've got to understand, that crowd is large. And in many ways, fighting against that in our culture is harder because they claim the name of Christian. They claim to have faith, and they, are, they fill the pews of many churches. And I just want to tell you, as we think about the distinctive of the sufficiency and the authority of, scriptures, of the Scriptures, that you better buckle up as a Christian. If you believe in the sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures, then you better buckle up, because there's a very large group of lost people in our culture that calls themselves Christians. But they don't fight from the scriptures. They fight with additional laws built upon all kinds of secular ideologies and such. This group 
in America is going to fight harder and harder and harder. And if the church is going to stay true, then we have to recognize what we're fighting against and where it's going to come from. They're not going to go away any Again, we have decades and decades of millions of people taught in a way that functionally denies the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Now, here's the good news. Since Jesus is Lord, and since they, in large part, are not true followers of Jesus, they will eventually fade away into the lostness of this world. So we are saying as a church that Christ the Lord Church is distinct from this nonsense because we believe the scriptures are sufficient and that they are in absolute authority over all creation. God's great glory in part is on display in the beautiful, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. And he has mercifully and graciously given it to his church. We should see it as that gift. I don't know if you've ever thought about, this is a side note, I don't know if you've ever thought about, you know, when, when the Israelites get to Mount Sinai and, and the Lord's uh, giving the Ten Commandments and such, what a grace that was to God's people for him to say, I am God, here's what I'm about, here's my character, and you should live likewise. The guidance that that is. The grace and mercy that that is. The first thing I want to talk about is the Lord's authority written down. The Lord's authority written down. The scriptures are authoritative because it's the Lord's authority written down. Again, authority, such a beautiful word that is being lambasted in our culture today. Rightful authority brings glory to God by rightly ordering our chaos by imposing God's law. Authority, rightful authority brings glory to God by rightly ordering our chaos, by imposing, by speaking of, by holding accountable to God's standards. That's a good thing for us. Our culture says any imposition or imposing of standards on my standards is wrong and oppressive and hurtful and all the other cute buzzwords. But look at 1 Peter 1, 19-21 again. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Like he's saying, listen, this is, this is a grace to you. Pay attention because it's, it's going to be light in your darkness. He says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the First Timothy passage, we'll read more in a second, it says that the Scriptures are God-breathed. So we see in the first Peter is that it's not men writing these words, it's God writing these words through men as they're carried along by the Spirit. That means that these words, if they are God's words, then it is God's expressed authority. It's His words written down. 
So the scriptures are not just some random dude's interpretations, but are God's inspired words. Yes, written by man, but again, carried, God carried the pen along as they wrote. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says this concerning the authority of the Holy Scriptures. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. The words are authoritative because they're God's words, and God is supremely authoritative. Let's talk about authority in practical terms for just a few moments. The scriptures are in authority over all other spheres of authority. If God's in authority, then it means his words are in authority over all other spheres of authority. That means the government, the church, the household, and the self. That his words are in authority, yes, even over POTUS. POTUS will be held accountable to God's holy scriptures whether he recognizes it or not. The scriptures are an authority over all spheres of authority. Again, to, be remind, to remind you of something from last week, it's outside of us. The scriptures are outside of us. It's breathed out by God. Not breathed out from us, not breathed out from our imagination. It's breathed out by God. It's not inside of us other than when he writes it on our hearts, but it doesn't come from us. It doesn't originate from us. It's also objective. There is truth. The scriptures are truth that stand transcendent and concrete even amidst our subjective and feelings worshiping culture and nonsense. Western culture and majority of supposed churches in the West have rejected an objective reality. That there is something outside of our experience that is objective and true and that we can measure things against that. Listen, Paul, Paul is telling Timothy to reprove, rebuke, exhort, right? How can you reprove, exhort, rebuke, if you're not measuring it against something that's immovable. That would not be just. So the idea of objective measure, an objective measuring rod is implied in Timothy's words. There's something at which you are going to rebuke, and you can only rebuke or exhort or whatever if it's being held up against a concrete objective standard. But his authority, again, is objective. The words and the authority of his words is objective. So many churches don't realize how porous or permeable or how many holes are in their walls and have allowed other authorities to get in. Listen, our own minds struggle the same way. 
Each and every day, there are holes in the walls around your mind and your heart. And if you're not careful, you'll let other authorities, other than God's word and what he deems rightful and appropriate authority, to get through and submit to those. His words are authoritative. Let's talk about where we functionally deny the authority of the Scriptures. You say, all right, Matt, all that stuff's going on out there, blah, 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 blah. What about, what about here? What about me? Where do we functionally deny the authority of the Scriptures? First of all, the Scriptures tell us what is the norm. The Scriptures tell us what's the norm. Let me define that for you. Something that is usual, typical, or the standard. So scriptures tell us what is the standard, what should be normal, right? If God's standard, we're created in his image, I'm sorry, if we're created in his image and God sets the standard, then what is normal is what the standard is. So that should be what is normal around us if we were made in the image of God. Again, in Timothy, the standard by which we are held accountable to, that's the norm. It's what life should be measured against. It's what your feelings, what your experience, it's what your thoughts and desires and passions and plans should be measured against, the norm. But it's easy for us to look around our world, even inside our own homes, and equate common with normal. And it happens a lot, so that must be normal. And so what we believe to be normal, we tend to make the standard. So we look around us, we see the world, or even in our own lives, and okay, well, these things are normal, and then we start to lower the standard. So what happens then is as the common continues around us, continues its fast track towards greater depths of debauchery, we foolishly equate what is usual or common with some sort of new standard. We lower the standard time after time after time again. But the scriptures tell us what is normal and what is the standard. Listen, for example, it's not normal to have an outburst of selfishness toward your spouse or anyone else, no matter what your emotional state is. But that's what's normal around us. That's what's common. But the scriptures do not say that that should be the norm. Self-control should be the norm. Another example, it's not normal to disrespect your husbands. It's what our culture says is norm. That's what's common. It's not normal for a man to work hard all day and then come home and not lead his family because he's tired. That's not normal. That's common in our day. But that's not what the Bible says should be normal. It's not normal for a wife to run the house via passive manipulation. That's not normal. That might be commonly what happens around us, but according to the scriptures, that's not the norm. The scriptures tell us the norm, and it's easy for us to deny the sufficiency of the scriptures when we look around us to set what's the norm. 
Next, the scriptures interpret life experiences for us. Again, no matter what your circumstance is, whether difficult or one of the most amazing and joyful circumstances you might be a part of, the scriptures help us interpret those experiences. It shines light into the darkness. It helps us give credit where credit is due when it's glorious and delightful. From days of hopelessness, the scriptures tell us that we have hope of eternal life and that God works all things for the good of his chosen people. How amazing! It's helping you interpret that dreadful, terrible, hurtful moment. Or a moment like this where maybe you believe that someone has sinned against you. And so you go to that person and you confront that person. But as you talk, and Lord willing, both of you submit to the scriptures, their authority, you realize maybe the other person did not sin. It could have been because you just simply had wrong information. But it also could be because you've added to God's word a new standard and you believe your standard to be authoritative. So you're now holding someone accountable to your law that you believe is authoritative. Maybe a silly example here, but defining what care for me looks like, maybe you say something like, you need to make sure you communicated with me X amount of times, X amount of times over this particular issue. Okay, well, but, but by what standard? Where does the Bible say I should have communicated with you X amount of times? Or, or you shouldn't have used that tone of voice. And here's the reality. If you're actually holding someone to your standard that you believe to be authoritative over their life, you're denying the authority of the Scriptures. That's the, like, that's the problem here. So now, not only did the other person not sin, but you actually sinned against them by imposing your authoritative laws and your authority over top of them. Again, ways that we functionally deny the authority of the Scriptures. Next, the Scriptures are in authority over our emotions. Listen, I'll just be real honest with you. When, when I'm exhorted or rebuked or, and, and done so rightly by a brother or sister, I don't naturally feel loved. Like I, that's not my typical response, okay? Um, I don't necessarily, I, usually what I feel is hurt or angry or some mixture thereof. That, that's what tends to come out first. Now, I really do feel those things. I'm not denying the reality of feeling that way. But what they reveal is that I'm believing something the Scriptures say is wrong to believe. They're exposing something inside my heart. The Scriptures are in authority over those emotions in that moment. And they tell me, hey, Matt, you need to go take a look. Why do you feel that way? And when I dig in there, oh, I feel this way because maybe, for example... You know, Hebrews 3 tells us that, that I need it, that I should be exhorted daily, lest I grow cold, my heart grows cold. And so what I'm believing, at least in part, maybe in that moment, is that I don't really need it, or that God's, again, that God's word says I need it, but I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. 
So I should not only in that moment repent for what I was being rebuked for, but I also should repent at least to the Lord for believing the wrong things that led to my hurt and anger. It's so easy for us even in that moment to say, ah, but he was a jerk when he said it, right? And just kind of make ourselves feel better as we walk away somehow about our own sin. Maybe he was a jerk, but by what standard? By what standard? Our feelings? Maybe because of pride, our feelings were as big as a hot air balloon that was just waiting to be popped. So any kind of rebuke in any kind of tone might feel jerkish because I'm overly sensitive because my ego's so big. You see, the scriptures, they'll help us understand that they're in authority over those emotions. And if we believe they are, then we will go to the word and ask the word to sift how I'm feeling about this situation and not be those who functionally deny the authority of the scriptures, even over our emotions. This, our emotions are a grand thing. They're like the warning lights on your dashboard in your car. They tell you something's either working well or something's not working well, but they're indicators of what's going on inside. And the scriptures help us understand that and discern that. The the Lord's words have the final say. It's the interpretive lens. It's the expression of our Lord. And it is the authority, again, whether man or woman recognize it as such. It's God's gracious and marvelous gift to us. There is so much freedom and joy and jovialness that comes when you know the word and submit to it as your authority. Next, the Lord's sufficient words. First, it was the Lord's authority written down, and now it's the Lord's sufficient words. You know, the reality when it comes to the sufficiency of the Scriptures is you either believe they're sufficient or they're not. As we talk about sufficiency, if, you're going to, if we're going to define something sufficient, we need to first understand its purpose. So are the Scriptures, so we're talking about purpose of the Scriptures, and then we're going to talk about its sufficiency. Are the Scriptures sufficient, and by sufficient you mean to know how to structurally put together a modern house? Are the Scriptures sufficient? to help you build a house? Like which lumber and weight loads and deflection, those, like does it teach you those things, how plumbing? No, it doesn't, right? We know this. So when we say the Bible's sufficient, we don't mean sufficient for absolutely everything. The purpose, though, of the Scriptures is to reveal to us a certain measure of who God is who man is, and how man is to walk faithfully in light of who God is. 
to reveal to us what God wants us to know about himself at this point in the timeline. And who man is. And how to walk accordingly. To put it in other words, to kind of drill down a little further, the word of God is sufficient to disciple the church to a life of godliness. The word of God is sufficient to disciple the church to a life of godliness. That is its purpose, revealing who God is, who man is, and how we should walk. So what we don't mean is, again, that it's sufficient to instruct us in everything. It doesn't instruct us how to make a cheeseburger. But it does tell, tell us how to Christianly make a cheeseburger. Lots of cheese, none of that mustard ketchup garbage. Lettuce, tomato, bacon, jalapenos. That's how you do it in a Christianly fashion. None of that 97-3 stuff either. 80-20. You got to like wipe the grease away. That's a Christianly cheeseburger. It's, it's actually probably not, but that's another conversation. The scriptures are not sufficient in those things. It's not supposed to be sufficient in those things. But it is sufficient in in its telling us how to do all things in a Christianly way. So what we do mean is that there is a right way to believe concerning God and creation. And there is a Christianly way to do everything. It is sufficient to govern the doctrinal content of the Christian faith. And the way that faith is to be lived out, it's sufficient. We don't need anything else. Again, back to the London Baptist Confession, 1689, Article 1. It says this, The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the... um, Therefore, it, is ple- it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that, his will, or declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against, against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary. So let's talk about its sufficiency a little further here. First of all, it's sufficient for the news of salvation. If it's sufficient to know God, who man, and how we're to walk obediently, then that involves sufficient for the news of salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 4, or uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 and 15, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted, pay attention here, with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So listen, the scriptures teach us who God is. The sacred writings, what, what, was, what would Paul be talking about here? Listen, he's referring... Uh, mainly to the Old Testament. At this point, how much of the New Testament would have been written? I mean, very little. There would have been some letters being circulated and such around, but he's referring to the Old Testament. And John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God. From the very beginning, the word's been about God. The scriptures teach us who God is. And he says that these faithful, these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He says it's basically, it's able to inform him of who Jesus is. And it's able to inform him of his desperate need for Jesus. It is sufficient, to use some terms from last week, it is sufficient to reveal our depravity, the expectations of God's law, and of the eternal hope of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. It is sufficient for these things. It is sufficient. This good news proclaimed from the sacred writings was sufficient to change the heart of Timothy. Listen, we don't need as a church cool graphics or signage, a food pantry, podcasts, or even air conditioning. We need the sacred writings. They are sufficient for the news of salvation. We want to draw people to Christ the Lord Church with the sufficiency of the Word, not by cool tricks or cute how-to sermons, but with the sufficiency of the Word. Next, it's sufficient for every good work of salvation. So it's sufficient for the good news of salvation. It's sufficient for the good work of salvation. It's perfect. Wow, that had a lot of air in that. It's perfect. Psalm 19:17, the first part says, "The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul." Back to our first Timothy passage. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Listen, how marvelous. Though God has a standard, God saves his people through the work of Jesus. The standard still stands, but he saves us through the blood of Jesus. Then he lays out for us good works that will be in accordance with that standard, and he gives us the Bible to equip us to work out all of those works that he planned for us. How amazing. And then, in other passages, we see that he gives us the grace to do all of that. So he says, you're going you're to do this. I'm going to save you. I'm going to equip you. I'm going to empower you. And you're going to do these things. See, the scriptures sufficiently tell us what God requires of man. That he may be complete. That he may be equipped for every good work. Like he, he, the scripture is sufficient to tell us what must I do and how must I do it. The good works and how I do it. This righteous, training in righteousness. Now, and here's something beautiful. If the scriptures don't tell us specifically or implicitly 
then in part, to some measure, it doesn't matter which I do as long as I do it in a Christianly fashion, in a righteous way. Do I do this work? Or do I do this work? Do I take this job? Do I take this job? The problem is where many of us get in trouble is we don't know or we assume that God doesn't have something to say about the decision or actions we're about to make or that we are making. That's where the scriptures, in its sufficiency, tell us to go seek counsel from people who know the word better than us. But the scriptures sufficiently tell us what duty God requires of man. Listen, you don't have to guess. You might have to study, but you don't have to guess. Listen, our world likes to heap standards on people and then keep you guessing as to what those standards are because they change them every day. God's standards don't change, and He's clear. Let's move on. The scriptures tell us what we must do in order for our conscience to rest easily at night. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That means that at the end of the day, it is sufficient to help me understand, was I righteous this day in these items? So when we lay our heads down, what must I do to rest my head at night knowing that I have pleased the Lord? Yes, listen, our ultimate security and hope rests in the righteousness of Jesus. Absolutely. But we work out that righteousness every day. Our relationship with the Lord, with, with our Father, is not going to be ended because there was unrighteousness in our day, meaning that I practiced that day, if my hope is ultimately in Jesus. But my relationship with the Father will be hindered by my unrighteousness. So in that question, how do I know? Listen, we believe that the Scriptures tell us that we need to know, not, it doesn't tell us all that there is to know, but all we need to know in order to bring the day to a close and say, Lord, I need to repent of this. Lord, I don't believe I need to repent for this. I've walked righteously, or in these ways I've not. Forgive me, and I go to sleep. The scriptures tell us precisely what this obedience looks like. Paul Tripp says this, even though we know our obedience can't save us, a desire to live within the boundaries of God's law and a cry for help to do so is a sure sign of the operation of God's grace in our hearts. Again, the scriptures tell us precisely what this obedience looks like. It tells us where the boundaries of God's standards are. What a gift. I mean, if you've ever been trying to put together something, you know, like an Ikea thing, and you're like, I got this. I don't need the instructions. Anybody? Come on. I have. Like, I can do it by the picture all the time. And then I get like halfway through, right? You get, and you get to that moment where you're like, 
You can't stare at the picture anymore to figure out what the next part is. God doesn't work that way. Like, like, you don't have to work that way with the Lord, I guess is what I want to say. The Lord doesn't leave us with just little cartoon pictures that we're supposed to somehow figure out what the next screw is. He lays it out for us in his word. But this also means that there's a Christian way to do everything. Christian duty. That's these good works. Christian duty. Listen, duty is only a dirty word to those who don't want to complete the duty. If Adam had wanted to trust God, then conquering the serpent when he should have, that duty would have been an amazing delight for him. Jeff Pastor Jeff said we should get a t-shirt that says duty isn't dirty. I think so. Would you wear it? I'll wear it. Hashtag duty isn't dirty. The scriptures tell us what we must do in order for our conscience. So how does it do this? Very quickly. In teaching. It says teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. It's sufficient for imparting knowledge. In teaching, it's sufficient for imparting knowledge, for informing us of right belief and how to interact with that right belief. It's sufficient for that. For reproof, reproof means to discipline or to punish or to express strong disapproval of. Now listen, in a church full, or in a, in a world rather, full of pragmatists, And old school fundamentalists that deny the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures, anything shy of affirming is often called shaming. But Paul here says that the scriptures, who he says are going to be taught by pastors and preachers, is profitable for reproof. It's profitable to express strong disapproval of. But not just reproof, but for correction. It's profitable for correction. Correction is more of the idea of bringing someone up after they've been brought low so that they can walk in obedience. So reproof is more like the idea of of bringing someone low Helping someone understand their station and their need for repentance before God. That's going to feel more harsh. Correction is like, how do, we, how do we make it right? How do we fix it? How do we now walk faithfully in perpetuity? How do we bring them up? It also says it's profitable for training in righteousness. Again, guidance for faithful living. The picture is literally of like a father training up his children. And our heavenly father does this through his word. It's sufficient for training in righteousness. And again, what is the result? What's the result? Equipped for every good work. Not equipped for just every good quiet time or equipped for every feel-good Jesus moment. 
but equipped for God-ordained, glorious work. Everything he's called us to. His word is sufficient to equip us to go make money for the glory of God. To equip us to educate our kids for the glory of God. To equip us to clean a toilet for the glory of God. The Bible is sufficient to equip us for every good work that God has planned. Let's dive in a little further to some practical application as to the sufficiency of the Scriptures. I want to ask this question, and then I want to give some examples. Where do we functionally deny the sufficiency of the Scriptures? You really need to sift through this this week. Where do you functionally deny the sufficiency of the Scriptures? In my list of examples, I want to try to step on everyone's toes. Here's the first one. When we read the Bible, but long more for an experience. Here's what this commonly looks like in our day. You spent time reading your Bible, and then you walk away saying, well, I didn't get anything out of that. Let me quote someone here so he can get in trouble for it, not me. If you say... You believe the scripture is sufficient, but you think the chosen makes the Bible come alive, you might not understand the sufficiency of the scriptures. What's happening in that moment is is that you're basing the sufficiency of the scriptures in that moment with the scriptures, you're basing its sufficiency on your subjective experience with it. But listen, every time we read the word, it does not return void. It either moves us in positive direction or in negative direction. I mean, it either softens the heart or hardens the heart. There is no neutral. There is no you got nothing out of that. It was sufficient. Listen, I think, I think, we were talking about this in in our uh, home group this past week. I think that's why many of us only read our Bibles, when life gets hard, because when we get hard, or when life gets hard, we are desperate for something to help us feel good, for something therapeutic, something experientially therapeutic. And so we go to the Scriptures, and we search it, and the Lord often provides help in those moments that is real and good. But if that is your primary or your, sadly, your only motivator for going to the Scriptures, then no wonder when life gets easier, you stop reading and searching the Scriptures. Because your belief in the sufficiency of the Scriptures is tied up in how you feel while reading it or afterwards. But remember, the sufficiency of the Scriptures is not in regard to you and I. It is not whether or not I feel good about it or not. It is sufficient for the task of helping us and leading us to know God, know ourselves, and to walk accordingly. Another way we deny the sufficiency of the Scriptures is when we want only to be brought up and not to be brought low. 
Only speak the words of the scriptures that bring me up and encourage me and correct me, but not the ones that reprove me and bring me low. We want the exhortation without the rebuke. Here's where I think that comes from. I think that comes from what we would call a semi-Pelagianism. If you don't know that term, don't worry about it. Or, well, you can go look it up later. But it's the idea that, I, that people are generally good people and just need a boost. So if I come to church thinking I'm generally a good person and I just, I just need a, a Red Bull or something to, to move to the next level, then you're going to judge every sermon based upon whether or not it feels like you just drank a Red Bull. But, but listen, the scriptures both bring low and they raise up. And if you deny the need on the bringing low, then you deny the sufficiency of the scriptures. Next, God told me. Practical ways we deny the sufficiency of the scriptures. Well, God told me. I love this one. Bodie Bauckham said this, quote, the Lord told me, end quote, is no substitute for, quote, the Bible says, end quote. Listen, we oftentimes look more for the still small voice when you already have roughly 138,000 words from the real voice. That's the original language count roughly is 138,000 for Greek and Hebrew. For those of you who are nerds, I'm going to go look that up. God told me. How about this? Another way we functionally deny the sufficiency of the scriptures is we quote blogs, books, etc. more than we quote the word of God. Listen, you can find anyone to say anything you want about whatever your heart desires. You could even find series of blogs turned into books picked up by publishers that say whatever you want to support however you feel. It's not wrong to quote other humans. We should do that. It's a good thing. The question is, at the end of the day, what is your authority being based on? Next, how we functionally deny the authority or the sufficiency of the scriptures, but my emotions, but my experience. Listen, we are all, I gave you my example above about being rebuked and the natural uh, outflow oftentimes of my own heart. Listen, we're all in danger of letting our emotions and our own interpretation of a situation be the reigning authority over us in that moment. It's really easy. Once you and I become emotionally committed to an idea or an outcome, it is oftentimes almost impossible, apart from a miracle of God, to correct it. We just get so entrenched. And all of our reasoning faculties go to work to support our emotional commitment. We must believe that the Scriptures are sufficient to interpret all of life. Next, Decision-making, how we functionally deny the sufficiency of the Scriptures, oftentimes in our decision-making. When we seek God's will for our lives in a way that forgets the sufficiency of the Scriptures, here's some examples. 
like who we should marry, what house to buy, which college to attend. So we got to make that life decision. Those are important decisions. But then we realize that specific guidance isn't given to us in the Bible word for word. We have the tendency to get all mystical. Right? Lord, give me a sign. Has anyone seen Bruce Almighty? It's one of my favorite scenes. If you've not, you're maybe too young. Um, he's just screaming, Lord, give me a sign, and out pulls this uh, construction truck with a whole bunch of like safety signs in the back, and you know, he basically misses it. But we get all mystical. Listen, that's not how we are told to seek his will. Oh, a leaf fell in just the right way. That must be a sign. No, the scriptures are sufficient, listen, to give us the wisdom we need to make wise decisions that honor God. They're sufficient to help us make every decision in a Christianly way. And when we seek the scriptures that way, we are free to choose any option that does not violate those principles. Praise God, there's freedom there. There's freedom. Why do you feel like you got to get all mystical in that moment between A or B? Do the hard work of knowing the principles that would guide that decision from the word and then enjoy the freedom of making A or B. Next, creating new standards for ourselves and others. How we deny the sufficiency of the scriptures. Creating new standards for ourselves and others. Some of us do this more to ourselves and some of us do this more to others. For those that do this to yourself, you probably refer to yourself as a perfectionist or something like that. What happens for you often is you live in continual self-condemnation because you've created standards for yourself that God doesn't keep you held accountable to. I need to work out X amount of times this week, and when I don't, man, I'm such a failure. Or I should have said this in that conversation. Wow, I'm terrible. I'm such a failure. That's a functional denial of the sufficiency of the Scriptures. The Scriptures have told you what God requires of you in that moment. Don't hold yourself to a standard that God does not hold you to. There's much freedom there. For those that, that do this more to others, and you write standards for other people that God does not hold them to, we oftentimes do this the most to the people who are closest to us. We also oftentimes do this to the people where, that we don't want to hear what they have to say. We create a standard. We say they didn't match it. And so then we crucify them based on our standard. Functionally denying the sufficiency of the scriptures. Hopefully one of those hit home. Now what does it mean, moving on from those examples, now what does it mean for ministry at Christ the Lord? If I'm going to apply the sufficiency of the scriptures, I'm just going to give you an overview here of some of the things we mean when we, when we believe this is how we're going to live out the sufficiency of the scriptures as leaders and as a church. First of all, we stand on the word, not on people's feelings or experiences. It doesn't mean that our feelings or experiences are not important, but it means they are under 
the authority, and will be sifted by the sufficiency of the word. Next, expository preaching. That will be our general diet of preaching. Passage by passage. Where we, what we mean by expository preaching, the content and the intent of the passage determines the content and intent of the sermon. That does not mean that we will never, I mean, I'm preaching largely a topical sermon today. But in a few weeks, we'll go to Hebrews and we'll be there for a long time. Also, a good expository preaching, if it believes in the sufficiency of the Scriptures, will apply the sufficient and authoritative word to the people present. More on that in a minute. It also means that we believe that it is sufficient to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That it is sufficient. The elders are not to do all the work of ministry. Their ministry is to teach the word and pray, equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. They don't do all the discipleship. They don't do all the counseling. They don't do all the hospital visits and so on and so forth. But they equip all of us to do that through teaching the word that is sufficient and authoritative. Next, we are committed to preaching to the sins in the room that we're teaching in. We joyfully reject this common form of preaching, even common among Reformed churches, that castrates faithful preaching by limiting it to a running commentary and a call to repentance for generic sins. It's just a modern-day version of ear-tickling, smooth preaching. We talk about all the sins that everyone struggles about out there so that we can all feel good about ourselves in here. Listen, there will be Sundays where you might even feel like the preacher is talking straight to you. I hope that happens every Sunday. And if you don't want that, Dr. Phil or Rob Bell can be found just around the corner, almost every corner. Listen, you should count that as a blessing. The pastors to preach the word to the sins that are present in our flock Listen, a preacher who knows his flock and loves his flock will apply the word with specificity to his flock. He'll do that from the pulpit. He'll do that over coffee. He'll do that in a home group. He'll do that in a conversation before or after service. You name it. Joe Rigney wrote a wonderful article on Christian courage. He says this. Let me read it slowly for you. This leads us to a key lesson for us about Christian boldness. If we are to be bold, we must bring the reality of Jesus to bear on the reality of human sinfulness. And not just generic sinfulness. While calls for repentance for generic sins have their place, true Christian boldness gets specific about sin and particular about context. He goes on. There is a perennial temptation for Christian preachers to gather a crowd and preach about all the sins, quote, out there, end quote. But faithfulness and boldness demand that we address the sins actually present in whatever room we find ourselves. And if we ever wonder which sins we ought to boldly address, we can simply ask which sins we're tempted to ignore and minimize. Which sins do we tread lightly around? 
Where are we tempted to whisper? That context requires Christian boldness. And then listen to these last few words from Joe. And Peter and John maintained this boldness in the face of threats and opposition as they go from being a mere nuisance in Acts 4 to the objects of jealousy in Acts 5 to the objects of rage and violence in Acts 5 and 7. The opposition escalates and the boldness abides. It continues. I'm sure there'd be many blogs written about Peter and John if they were here today. Next, counseling from the word. We as pastors, particularly, but anyone trained in doing more formal counseling at Christ the Lord, we will counsel from the word. We believe it is sufficient for a life of godliness. We know that there is other brokenness realities that should be dealt with in appropriate ways. But as it concerns wisdom and a life of walking in godliness, we believe the word is sufficient. And I, I'll take the time to note this, that when it comes to church governing documents, where the governing documents err according to the word, this church will submit to the word of God. We will submit to the word. And we will correct those documents. Lastly, I'm well over time, but lastly, pastors and the authority and sufficiency of the word. We talk about this just briefly here at the end of Timothy chapter 4. Let me read it for you. So this is pastors as it relates to the authority and sufficiency of the word. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, speaking to Timothy, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. Realize, recognize, this, recognize the context. He just got done talking about the sufficiency of the word that's breathed out by God. It's authoritative. It's sufficient to reprove, rebuke, and so on. And then he tells Timothy, and these are the immediate words afterwards, that you're to go do this. Timothy was a pastor, a teacher, an elder. Now you need to go now live in light of this. It's significant that Paul doesn't instruct Timothy and also in Titus to just go hand out a bunch of Gideon Bibles and leave it at that. There's not anything wrong with doing that, but there's more. Go preach the word. Go teach the word. Pastors are to teach the word. Some do it via the pulpit. Some do it through prayers, song, and liturgy. Some do it over coffee or dinner, but they're to teach the word, the authoritative and sufficient word. And the sufficient word tells us also that we need the teaching of faithful pastors, But then, what's he say? What's going to happen? This is important for all of us to take note. He says, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Listen, when pastors faithfully preach, your and my sinful passions will be exposed. And at that moment, you have one of two choices. 
repentance and faith. Or to tell the prophet to shut up and to give you only smooth words. That's the two choices. And Paul says there will be people who oppose this faithful teaching. Something to note here is that they can't oppose it from the truth. Why? What's it say here? It says they have turned away from listening to the truth. So they can't oppose it via the truth. So they have to find all sorts of other ways, subjective or worldly or false reasoning to it. I like this quote by Doug Wilson. He says, truth sounds like hate if you hate the truth. Well, find all sorts of ways to ignore it, to avoid it, to gather around teaching that will just itch our ears. It says they have turned away from listening to the truth. But the marvelous grace and the gift of God through Jesus and the new birth that he gives to his people is a taste, an appetite for his authoritative and absolutely sufficient word. When you taste it, and it tastes good, he gives that to his people. But it is sufficient whether or not in that moment we recognize it as tasty. It's authoritative whether or not we recognize it as authoritative in that moment. But God's people, walking by the Spirit, give a hearty amen and a thankfulness for his great gift of his words. And we also, when we fail at trusting his sufficient words and submitting to his authority, we trust his words say when we fail that there is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. That there is forgiveness. And we also trust his words when he says, when Jesus says, know the truth and the truth will set you free. And his word is sufficient to do that. To set you free from all sorts of evil from within and from without. Sets us free ultimately to carry on the mission that God has created us for. That's what's happening with Joshua. Where he's getting ready to take the land and God says, don't swerve to the left, don't swerve to the right. Why? There's success in the mission if you don't swerve to the left and don't swerve to the right. What's he saying? If you hold on to the truth, if you believe that my law is sufficient for you, Joshua, then your mission will go forward. Same is true for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that in the midst of the confusion of our own minds and the confusion of our own souls and longings and passions and emotions and in the midst of the confusion of the world around us, what do I believe? What are they saying? What do I listen to? Where do I go? What am I to obey? What am I to do next? In the midst of all that, Father, your word is sufficient for the, for the important things here in the midst of our chaos as it relates to walking in a life of godliness in light of who you are 
in who we are. Uh, your word is sufficient to save, meaning it tells us who you are. It tells us who Christ is. It tells us of our need for Christ and his redeeming work on the cross. It is also sufficient as we work out that salvation, telling us how we are to walk, what it looks like to walk in a Christianly way. So, Father, thank you for this marvelous, good gift, merciful and gracious gift to us. I ask that we would, you'd help us treat, us treat it as such. Father, for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.